Father, I thank you for the chance to be able to gather, to be able to talk about your word. And even as we were taking a huge chunk of uh, scripture tonight and talking about some abstract things, God, I pray that you would give us clarity of thought and give us uh, the ability to comprehend what it is that your word is written uh, for our benefit. And that God, that you would be the one that gets the honor for this. And as is my custom, would you take a moment and pray for me that the things that I say would be beneficial, they would be clear, they would be accurate, and that I would say nothing out of harmony with the gospel. Father, I'm excited to be able to talk about your word, to be able to talk about uh, some history that has real-world effects for us even today. And so, Father, I pray that as we are endeavoring to cover a lot of ground tonight, that you would give me unction, that you would give me your spirit to be able to speak as I ought, uh, that I would be bold and clear, um, and that I would be beneficial for those who are hearing, and it would give grace to all of us, and that, God, that you would be the one that receives the honor and the glory for this, and that uh, we will be built up uh, as a result. And so, Father, we pray that that will happen, that you would send your spirit not just for me, but for all of us, so that we might rightly understand what you have for us. And we ask all this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so last week um, we took a little bit of a break from our stuff to talk about um, the Holy Land. And we took a break from that. The plan was I was going to record a video. It didn't happen. I got sick. And so instead we're just going to pick up where we were supposed to be last week this time. And then over the Thanksgiving break, I'll record a video. We'll still be on track. We'll end on time. Not have to cut anything. Word. So if you were looking for that video to drop and it didn't drop, well, that's because it didn't exist, okay? But it will. All right, so let's talk about where we were two weeks ago during our last session. What we were talking about was the role of the prophets. I wasn't talking about prophecy. I was talking about prophets, who they were, um, how they operated, how God used them um, in history to steer uh, the nation of Israel, um, not only just with David and Saul and Solomon, um, the first monarchs, but how they are used more generally. So we talked about that. And the two big points I want us to remember there is that the prophets served a vital role for the health of God's people. That every time that they stray away from the covenant, they stand there as covenantal enforcers and they hold up Israel's behavior and they say, are you doing what the covenant says, yes or no? And if the answer is no, this is what you should do, right? They say that um, to kings. They say it to the people. They speak truth to power, right? And the second thing I want you to remember is that the work of the prophets was primarily ineffective, right? It was not very effective. And that doesn't mean that it was wrong or they didn't do it the right way. I mean, there's multiple times where God tells a prophet, they're not going to listen to you, but go do it anyway, right? And the point that I'm trying to make there is that if their work had been more successful, we would not have seen the judgment come the way that it did in history, right? As it is, that's where we are. Cool? If you want to listen to that, you've got the stuff from two weeks ago, get all sorts of information. All right, so what I'm going to do tonight is we ended two sessions ago by talking about the end of the monarchs. So we basically ran through Saul, David, and Solomon. What we are going to do is we're going to pick up with Rehoboam, who is Solomon's son, who takes up um, the kingship in the south. And then basically we're going to sprint all the way to the end of the northern kingdom just about to be destroyed. And I'm not going to talk about kings in between. Okay, 
Um, the reason for that is we spent a lot of time talking about uh, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and we talked about how the covenant is shaping this people and how they are expected to live, and that all of the failures of Moses and the judges and the first couple of kings, all of that is just going to come to bear on later kings. All of their successes are going to be reflected by what David did, and that the guys like Hezekiah and Josiah are going to going to radiate this is what their father David did, and then they're going to do it as well. However, the thing is, like, we're going to end in the same spot. And so, instead of me giving us a blow-by-blow of all the northern kings, which some of which serve for, like, three months or two years, there's no reason for me to go into detail about those cats, because if I can do a good job of painting the picture of the first two kings... You can kind of extrapolate the rest, okay? So we're going to go from the, the, the divided kingdom all the way to Israel's about to be destroyed and Judah's not far behind, yeah? Cool? All right, so this is how we're going to get there. We are going to talk about where the kingdoms are ultimately heading. I just told you, right? We're going to talk about the big picture where we're heading, and then we're going to talk about how the kingdom went from this unified monarchy into being split into the north and the south, and we're going to talk about Rehoboam and Jeroboam um, specifically and how they failed because they failed in unique ways. And then we're going to talk about this other nation that we have got to get in our head. We're going to talk about the Assyrians and we're going to talk about Syria. And when you hear Syria, you need to think Hittites and Arameans. Those are these guys, right? The Bible is going to use the term Syria um, for those cats. You may not necessarily see that. Um, in history books, that's because it's an, an anachronistic term. It's a term from later that we just call them that. Don't worry about it. We're going to talk about Assyria and Damascus, and then we're going to get some final thoughts, yeah? That's what we're doing. Word? All right, so let us talk about where the kingdoms are heading. And what I mean by that is we went from the united monarchy to now it is not united. And so David's dynasty... Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. There's this covenant that God cuts with David. And he says, I'm going to have an heir from you to be on the throne forever. And that lasts not even after David's dead because there's already infighting. And then immediately before Solomon takes the throne, there's infighting, right? And so there's this splintering almost immediately after David's death. Now we do get Solomon and there's a, a, a healthy, substantial reign there. But then as soon as he dies, we're right back to the same old stuff, right? And so we are going to see the united Israel split into two. And those two pieces are the ten northern tribes. I think Reuben, Gad, Ephraim, Dan, Simeon. Those cats are all up in the north, those tribes. Those are the ten northern tribes are called Israel. Sometimes they're called Ephraim because Ephraim is the largest tribe among those ten. And then you've got the two in the south. And those two southern tribes are called Judah, which is the main one. So that's what we just normally call the kingdom. And Benjamin, because Benjamin's kind of scattered and surrounded by Judah's land. Okay, So you've got the ten in the north and the two in the south. We're going to see some more details about that at the end of the day. So what happens with both of these nations? Well institutional idolatry, which we're going to talk about here in a bit. It was instituted by Jeroboam. That is what ruins Israel. Almost immediately, Jeroboam sets up some idols, and almost immediately a prophet shows up and says, this is going to, this is going to be the end of you, right? So that is what's going to ruin Israel, and where that leads them is they're going to be exiled, really more like destroyed by Assyria in 722 B.C., 
Three big dates you need to remember, about 900-ish B.C., that's David. 722, that's the, the fall of the northern kingdom. 586 is the fall of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, okay? So that's kind of giving you our time frame of everything we're covering tonight. Northern kingdom is going to get destroyed by the Assyrians in 722. Word? Southern kingdom is not as bad. It's not as drastic, but it is going to happen on almost an identical uh, line. It's basically going to be the exact same thing. But the issue for Judah is that there is going to be this gradual accumulation of the effects of their sin that eventually will lead to Jerusalem's destruction and Judah being taken off into exile in Babylon in 586, right? Now, what happens is about 70 years after that, around 520, Israel, we'll come back to using that term Israel for all of the Jews at this point, um, they will be reconstituted after they come back from Babylon, okay? That is the huge chunk of Israel's history that I am covering essentially tonight, right? So there's going to be a little bit more to talk about of how the north falls and how the south falls. We'll cover that in the video I'm going to publish. But you just need to know this is ultimately where we're heading, right? So any questions? Let me stop right there. I know that's a lot of big stuff to kind of throw at you all at once. Ed, yes, sir. Institutional idolatry, yes, sir. What does that mean? We'll talk about that in the in the next two slides. Yep, I'll talk about that specifically. Yep. Other questions? I just want to remind you, whenever we talk about the Hebrews, that's not just a name for the Jews. That's also telling us about a time that is before they are in the land. Then you have the Israelites, which is when they are in the land. And then Jews, that word comes from the term for Judah. So after they return from exile, Judah is really the only tribe that's really of substance. And so they are called the Jews because they're mainly from Judah. You see the connection there? And so whenever we see those three terms, they all refer basically to the same people, but it can refer specifically into three distinct times. Making sense? So right now, we're still talking about the Israelites, even though they're in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Cool? Excellent. So how did we get this division of the kingdom? So what I want us to do is go to 1 Kings chapter 11, and we're going to pick it up in verse uh, 26. Let's pick it up there in verse 26. I'm going to read about three or four verses here. 1 Kings eleven twenty-six says this. Jeroboam, the son of Nabot, an Ephraimite of Zeradah, a servant of Solomon. So this is a cat named Jeroboam. He works for Solomon, who's the king. Solomon's still alive at this point. Whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow who also lifted up his hand against the king. Okay, there we go. So he lifts up his hand against the king, and this is where we have this division. He is going to incite a rebellion against Solomon. Okay, we keep reading on. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the milieu and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. The man Jeroboam was able, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all of the forced labor of the house of Joseph. What's another term for forced labor? Slaves. You remember how we ended talking about Solomon saying that he actually looked more like Pharaoh than he did David? 
He had Israelites who were slaves building stuff for him. Like, come now, right? You see the connections there? And so this is at the very end of Solomon's life, and things are not great. And so Jeroboam has got some leadership potential, and so Solomon puts him over all of the slave labor in the north, what would become the northern kingdom, right? And so let's drive on from there. He was industrious, gave him charge. And at that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, uh, the Shilonite, found him on the road. And Ahijah, uh, Ahijah had dressed him in a new garment. And the two of them were alone in the open country. And we'll talk about that here in a second. But this is what happens. Skip down to verse 40. Solomon, when he finds out that there's been this prophecy that there's going to be the kingdom ripped out of his hand, verse 40 says this, Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam rose and fled to Egypt to Shishak. We'll come back to that name here in a bit. Shishak, king of Egypt. And he was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. And so this guy's in charge of all the forced labor. He's got some skill and he runs into this prophet and this prophet tells him, hey, you're going to get 10 tribes. And there's actually this exchange of where there's a garment that's torn and there's these 10 pieces that are given and there's these other two that are reserved. And he says, this is what's going to happen with Israel. You're going to be the king over 10 tribes and someone else will be the king over two. And what I want you to see here is if you look there in verse... 34 through 39, real quick. After that exchange, verse 34, this is what the prophet is saying, speaking on behalf of God. Verse 34, Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, speaking of Solomon and Rehoboam, <clears throat> for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes, but I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you ten tribes. And what I want you to see is that God remembers his promise to David. So this is all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There is always going to be a descendant from your line who is going to be on the throne and it will be there forever. But I am going to rip 10 of these tribes out of his hand. But there's going to be two and they're going to be for you. They're going to be reserved for David. So I just want us to make sure and see that there is this clear articulation that God is remembering his covenant promises. Hold on to that. And then lastly, we've already read it, verse 40. Solomon tries to kill this upstart but he runs off to Egypt to this cat named Shishak. Okay? Cool with that? All that's going on up in the north. Down in the south, Solomon finally dies, and his son, Rehoboam, I get it, Jeroboam, Rehoboam, doesn't actually help us out too much. Stick with me. Rehoboam is Solomon's son, and he is initially recognized by all those ten northern tribes. You can go and actually look in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let's read that. Rehoboam went to Shechem, up towards the north, for all of Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam the son of Naboth heard it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, he found out Solomon's dead, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And so all of Israel comes up to him, uh, to Rehoboam, and they say, hey, you know this whole slave labor thing, can we just not... That's basically the request. Can we just not? And Rehoboam takes a couple days and goes and gets with his boys, his idiot friends, and his idiot friends tell him, hey, if you really want to make a, make a mark, you need to tell them not only are you not going to not be slaves, you're going to keep being slaves, and it's going to be worse. And this is where the phrase that Rehoboam says is, my little finger is thicker than my father's thigh. Draw from that inference what you will. And he's saying, if you thought it was bad under Solomon, you are going to submit to me, and I'm going to make you submit. Well, that was really foolish, 
and he refused to lighten the workload. And what happens? As soon as Jeroboam gets back from Egypt, Israel rebels as soon as he shows up. Right? So exactly what Ahijah, the prophet, told him was going to happen. These ten tribes now splinter off. Boom. We now no longer have a unified Israel. You have the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. Rehoboam is in the south. Jeroboam in the north. Word? There's no going back at this point. There really isn't. It's all bad from here on out, basically. All right, any questions about this before I kind of draw a big conclusion for us? All right, here is the big point that I want you to see. As soon as this splintering happens, the loss of this united monarchy that was through David's line, the loss of that Davidic kingdom has immense spiritual consequences, even for us. Right, And this is not me exaggerating, but like you can draw a straight line from the events that happen from what goes on in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom to eventually where you get to Jesus, where he is the one who is going to bring about peace and unity for all of God's people. Because these fools ain't doing it. Right? When I think about this, the moment that we see the, the kingdom splinter, it should make us question, okay, what about 2 Samuel 7 though? I thought that David's line was like the deal. So why are we losing 10 out of the 12 tribes and they're just going to go do their own thing? How does this work? I think that is a legitimate question. And what it does is it's calling into jeopardy all that stuff and it brings up our central question that we've been talking about this entire time. We should be asking, how is this relationship going to be restored between Israel in the north and Judah in the south? Like, they're going to be a constant civil war for, like, always from here on out. Just, it's not completely accurate, but it's basically accurate. So how is relationship going to be restored? What is the answer that we've been saying over and over again? You tell me. Eventually we get to Jesus, but the broader question or broader answer is only, ever, always God's covenantal faithfulness. He made a promise to David. He will not break that promise. He has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that all of the nations are going to be blessed, and he is going to see that through. Now, for right now, though, it's hard to see how that's going to work, right? I mean, like, if you just kind of just set aside what we know about the rest of the biblical storyline, if you look at this, this is a bit of a crisis, is it not? So here's what I want you to think about. When you consider all of David's failures with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 10, what Nathan tells David is, you do realize that the sword's never going to depart from your house. And then immediately some of his children are at each other's throats. One of them tries to kill him. One of them tries to overthrow him. And then Solomon's got to shed some blood for him to come to the throne. And then his grandson, David's grandson, Rehoboam, is now going to have to fight a civil war and lose, and the nation's going to split. You add David's sin, and you have that, and you throw on top of that all of Solomon's failures with idolatry, like from the outset, looking in, is like, yeah, of course this is what was going to happen. Like, how could we not have something catastrophic take place? And what we need to see is that, here's the application for you. Sin always brings about loss. Always. There's never a time where sin does not bring about loss. Are you tracking with that? Because if we recognize that, 
you start seeing that David sinned with that Bathsheba. Yeah, that produces Solomon, but it also produces catastrophic civil war, which we just saw. Solomon has created this great peace for the entire nation, but how did he secure that peace? He has a thousand marital relationships. He's got 700 wives, and he's married all these chicks that are not Hebrew, they're not Jewish, they're not Israelites, and so he is basically adopting their worship of idolatry, and it is promulgating all the way through the nation. All of this leads to a problem that frankly is only going to be solved after Israel comes back from exile. And you can see that just through the history, but also you can see that this is exactly what Moses told them was going to happen in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Here's the covenant. If you adhere to it, here are the blessings. If you do not adhere to the covenant, the land, the word he uses is, the land will vomit you out. It will kick you out. It will repulse you. What happens to the northern kingdom? Exile, destruction. What happens to the southern kingdom? Exile to Babylon. There is no way that sin does not bring about loss. And let me just be really clear. Our selfish pursuit of comfort or just selfishness in general will bring about loss for you personally, for your family, for our church, for our nation, for creation. That's how it works, right? I mean, depending on whatever you think is like the most pressing issue of the day, I think it fits into that category, does it not? Whether you think environmentalism is like the most important issue, like you do realize that we are not like inheriting the earth from our parents, we're borrowing it from our kids, right? And I can see how selfishness would ruin that. If you think a lack of peace is the problem, well, if you are so set in your own ways that this is the way that the, light, uh, that the projection of power should work and who cares whoever gets hurt, you see how that is selfishness and that has downstream effects and it's going to produce loss? I think all of it fits into this category. There's no such thing as a consequence-free sin. They're written. And I can demonstrate that for you by saying, okay, Jesus, perfectly sinless, never did anything wrong, was completely, was, he was murdered in a very unjust way. Right? And that's for all of my past present and future sins, just like yours, right? So if that's true on that level, just blow it up on the macro and it just gets worse and worse. So here's the thing. Do not confuse the issue. God absolutely will allow natural consequences for sin and that in no way is infringing on God's grace. That's not an affront to God's grace. Our sin is an affront to God's justice right? That's why the loss of the Davidic kingdom has huge consequences for us. Because this is wrapped up in what was the promise that God made to David? Looks like it's in jeopardy. How's our relationship going to be restored? Only, ever, always through God's covenantal faithfulness. Yeah? All right. I'm going to pause right there. Any questions? This is not going to be a real cheery night, just so you know. If I didn't prepare you for it earlier, better late than never. Okay? All right, so let's talk about some of that institutional idolatry. 
Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Let's talk about their individual failures. Rehoboam, who is supposed to be the rightful heir, I'm going to remind you, rules in Judah in the south. And then Jeroboam, Jeroboam who's the upstart, he rules in the north in, uh, in Israel. All right, so what I want to do is I want us to look at 1 Kings chapter 12, and we're going to pick it up in verse 25 through 30. So the kingdom's divided in 1 Kings 12, about halfway through the chapter. And let's pick it up in verse 25. Does anybody have a heading over, like a subheading over verse 25 in your Bible? The golden calves at Bethel and Dan. Let me just stop right there. When you hear the term golden calf, where should your mind run? What should you be thinking about? What story? Aaron, right? He's at the bottom of Mount Sinai. Moses is up on top of the thing, getting the law from God. Moses comes down there and there's a golden calf that Aaron made. And when Moses asks him, like, what happened? Aaron's like, I don't know. Like, all this gold hopped in there and it's just, here it is. Like, no, that's not how this works. Like, this was an intentional fashioning. And so what does Jeroboam do? He creates... These golden calves, he sets up two of them. One at Bethel, down in the south of his kingdom, and one at Dan, way up at the north. Now, the reason why I think that's important is because there's, there's a problem here, right? Let's just say it. He sets up idolatry as the proper way to worship, and he sets up a priesthood that's going to be the means by which you approach these idols. Does that... Does that cohere to the covenant or not? You tell me. Like, obviously not. So whenever you ask, Ed, how is this institutionalized idolatry, the king made this his whole deal. Now, why did he do it? I think there's a couple of reasons why. One, he set it up in Dan, way up at the north, and Bethel down at the south. And part of the reason he did that was so that his people in Israel would not go to Jerusalem, which was the only proper place to actually make sacrifices, right? You can't have your people going to your rival to then go worship God, so you got to keep them from going. How do you keep them from going? Guys, you don't need to go all the way to Jerusalem, man. We got, we got worship right here. We got worship at home. Use this, right? And he sets one up way up in the north so it's easier for them. And he sets one up way down south so it's cutting people off from going to Jerusalem. I think another reason why he does this is because this is actually his attempt to like unify all of these Canaanite worship of idols and pagan worship that existed within Israel. And let's be really clear, where did that idolatry come from? Who would we point at and say, he's the one that's responsible for having this take place in Israel in the first place. Who? Solomon. Right? So you see how we spend all that time on how Moses and Joshua and those cats have their failures and their victories and the judges, and then you get to these three kings and they really mess things up. At some level, I don't need to explain all these other failures from these other guys because it's their fault at some level. It's these previous kings, and they're just walking in the thing that they know. They should have known better, but they didn't do better. So I don't need to talk about all these jacked up kings in the north because it's more of the same. Same song, different tune, right? So he sets up this priesthood. He sets up these, um, these uh, idols and says, Behold, these are the gods who brought you up out of Egypt, which is almost exactly what Aaron was saying, right? And so he's trying to connect portions of Canaanite worship to Israel's history, 
Not a good part of their history, but he reaches back and says, hey, let's just do that again, okay? So that's Jeroboam up in the north. That's institutionalized idolatry. Word? What about Rehoboam? Well, Rehoboam's going to follow in his father's steps by chasing after foreign gods. He never stops this idolatry that was already there and present. When you start reading about him, you can look in uh, 1 Kings chapter... Actually, we'll talk about that here in a second. 1 Kings chapter 14, verses 21 through 24, and you will see that Rehoboam does the exact same thing that Solomon did. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick, and Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise, disguise yourself. We're going all that there. Actually, I'm, I'm on the wrong spot. My bad, my bad. 21 through 24. Here we go. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. And Rehoboam was 41 years old. He reigned 17 years. Verse 23, And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy for their sins they that they committed more than their fathers had done. You see what I'm getting at? He's doing the same thing Solomon was doing. Now it takes a little bit longer for that accrual of all the consequences of sin to take hold in Judah, but it's all the same stuff. And so what ends up happening is whenever you look in verse 25 through 28, after this clear reckoning of Rehoboam had done wrong, who do we see in verse 25? 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, what's his name? Shishak, king of Egypt. So one of Israel's old oldest enemies, rears their head, plunders the palace and the temple. Right? You see how that works? Like you're just inviting disaster, whereas whenever David was pursuing the Lord and was doing what was right in the Lord's eyes, that there was this protection. But the moment that Jay starts straying from that, things go from bad to worse to worser. Right? What we see from the rest of the story is that many of Rehoboam's fortresses were actually destroyed by Egypt, leaves them vulnerable literally for generations. A lot of those fortresses that either Rehoboam or really Solomon built, well, they're gone. Gone. So all those gains from Solomon are gone. And what happens from there is that Israel's enemies begin to flourish. You start reading more about Moab and Ammon and the Arameans, hint, hint, and the Syrians, the Hittites. The Philistines even start making a comeback. Why? Because the king is failing to do the primary thing that he is expected to do, which is not protect the people, it's to lead them in covenantal faithfulness. And he failed to do so. You're tracking with that? All right. Let me just pause right there. Any questions about Rehoboam and Jeroboam and their failures? All right, here's the big point that I want us to take away when we look at these two guys. And this is not just for them, but it's also for us. Our best attempts to manufacture God's blessing and His design always fall short. You cannot, in and of yourself, generate God's design and it be equal with Him. Like, you are not wise enough just to make that happen. You cannot, by force of will, compel God to bless you, right? You get that. The way that God blesses you is He sends a prophet and He says, okay, let's look at the covenant where I've already told you what you're supposed to do. Are you doing it or not? Right? That's not something that we manufacture or something that we do, right? So Jeroboam 
obviously creates this wicked idols to represent the gods that brought them out of Egypt. <clears throat> the same thing that Aaron did. Rehoboam creates these golden um, shields. I didn't tell this part of the story, but Shishak, whenever he comes and plunders the temple and the, uh, the palace, Solomon had made all these huge shields that were covered in gold. Well, what do you think Shishak took off home with? Those shields. And since Rehoboam couldn't be out here with no shields, you know what he did? He made some bronze shields. Kind of like gold, but not at all. Right? You can even see that like narratively, we're seeing that the things that he's trying to do to replace the, 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 the splendor of the temple is just, it, it ain't going to work. Whenever we look at this, we need to recognize this. Here's our application. Is that God's blessing matters but how we get there to God's blessing matters more, actually. In many ways, it matters how we get there more than the blessing itself because the blessing has already been laid out. And we've already been told there's going to be trials, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be these problems that come along the way, but how we get there matters. Like, I don't... Let me just say it this way. I think I've said something like this similar uh, before, but let me say it again. I don't know how involved God is in your material blessing if you gain that material blessing through sin. Right? I don't know how involved God is in that. I would be inclined to say none. Right? However, it's not completely true that there is not blessing to be involved through sin because the example I gave earlier of Jesus, He was murdered right? Unjustly, having not committed any sin, and I receive salvation as a result. So we do need to square with that. But what I'm trying to highlight here is that if we're trying to brute force our way to God's blessing, that's not what he's been asking for all along. How is relationship to be restored? Only through covenantal faithfulness that God demonstrates for us, right? I've said this uh, over and over, but we have got to patiently endure whatever's going on. And as we're patiently enduring, we are pursuing God's best for us in whatever constraints God's applied to us, right? So one of the things we talk about is within marriage, Anthony has spoken about this, that the gift of sex is constrained to within marriage. You pursue sex outside of marriage, it's not going to be exactly what God wanted it to be, right? This is why fighting sin is such a big issue for us. We have got to be consistently on red alert about fighting sin because whenever we fail to be vigilant is whenever we get jacked up the most. Um, one of the things I've actually said to college students over the last couple of weeks on campus, um, and I'm using this definition from our pastor in Louisville, he said this, all sin is satisfying a God-given desire in a God-forbidden way. All sin. All sin is satisfying a God-given desire in a God-forbidden way. In our best attempts to pursue God's blessing, if that looks like as a father that I'm going to provide for my children, but I'm going to do it in an underhanded way, I'm satisfying a God-given desire to provide and that's been instilled in me that that's what God has created me for. But if I do it in a God-forbidden way through sin, like that's not beneficial. As a mother, if you are wanting to protect and raise and lead your children, but you end up being this helicopter parent that just smothers your kids to where it is like absolutely 
no way that they can stretch their own legs and learn. Like, I don't know if that's exactly what God asked us to do. If you're a student, yeah, God called you to be, to be a good student and make good grades, and then you cheat on a test. Do you think that's how God wanted you to get there? Like, obviously not. Our best attempts to manufacture God's blessing are going to fall short. Unless we are not trying to manufacture it, but we're just trying to walk in faithfulness and just do what He already told us to do. Yeah? Y'all tracking with that? And I think that lesson is actually playing out on the macro scale with Jeroboam and Rehoboam. With these goofy calves and these goofy bronze shields that are happening to get hung up in the temple because they're trying to get this cheap facsimile of what it used to be. And that's not what God's asking them for. Yeah? All right, anything else on that? All right, two more big chunks, and then I've got our final thoughts. Let's talk about Assyrian ascent and Syrian decline. This is the way I'm going to frame it every time moving forward. Uh, next week, we're eventually going to get to the Syrian, uh, I'm sorry, Assyrian descent, and we're going to talk about Babylonian ascent. And after that, it's going to be the Persian ascent and Babylonian descent, Greek, then the Romans. We're going to talk about all that stuff in the last couple of weeks. But in order to understand who the Assyrians and the Syrians are, we actually have to talk about the Akkadians. <laughs> okay? The Akkadian Empire, think about 2,000 years B.C., this was the first empire in Mesopotamia, right? So when you think about the Levant, everything is from the Tigris and the Euphrates that leads up towards um, Turkey and then along the Mediterranean, that whole area. That first empire was the Akkadian Empire. And what comes out of the Akkadian Empire about 800 years later is Syria, which are the Hittites and the Arameans, and Assyria. Those are two different people groups. Cool? I'm going to blitz through this. Eventually what ends up happening is Assyria starts to dominate economically and militarily. There is this battle called the Battle of Kadesh between Egypt and Syria. It throws everything into disarray. The Assyrians swoop in and then they start taking over from there. Right? And they are trying to reestablish some old boundaries that basically were the Akkadian Empire. And what happens from there is the Assyrians eventually start sacking temples in Babylon. Um, you can actually read some of that later in uh, 2 Kings. So we're done with 1 Kings now. We're looking to the very end at this point in 2 Kings. So you have the Assyrians are now on the rise. And here's the problem. All along, Israel and Judah have been having a civil war. It's this running gun battle that's been going on for like decades. And what ends up happening is Judah is under attack by not only the, uh, their neighbors to the north in Israel, but also from Syria. So Judah, one of their kings named Ahaz, he actually asks for help from Assyria to help him fight these guys. And if you know and remember what we talked about where the, the destinies of these two nations lay, you know that's not great news because what does Assyria do? Bet, I'll help. And then they come in, this cat named Tiglath-Pileser III, he's going to come and he's going to completely destroy Syria and then eventually Israel. Are you tracking with that? And let's not miss, why did that happen? Judah asked for their help. That's, that's just a weird one to noodle. 
I think this shows us just how much sin has crept in to God's people here. Not only has the nation just utterly divided, but it leads to the civil war where one of them gets stomped out by this third party. Like, this is not good, right? Are you tracking with that? So let's talk a little bit more about Ahaz because Ahaz, it actually gets worse for him. So if you want to learn a little bit more about Ahaz, let's look at 2 Kings chapter 16. Flip ahead to 2 Kings 16. We get a great introduction to this cat. I've got a subheading, Ahaz rules and reigns in Judah. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Excellent. He was 20 years old when he began to reign. Excellent. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. Excellent. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Ooh, as his father David had done. Okay. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. So he's just as bad as those guys up north. Well, how bad could he be? He even burned his son as an offering. And if you know the history of why Joshua was told, go take possession of the land and wipe out the Canaanites, one of the things that is the big piece of evidence as to why that was what Israel was supposed to do was because God said their worship of these idols is deplorable and they offer their own children up as burnt sacrifices. Here's this dude doing the exact same thing generations later. And let's not just say, oh, well, this guy is all that bad and just, I don't want to excuse his behavior. But at the same time, where did this begin? With Solomon allowing Canaanite worship in Israel, right? So you see that we're connecting all of those strings. I don't have to talk about all these dirtbag kings in between. It's more the same. So Tiglath-Pileser comes. He helps. He destroys Syria. Uh, the, the capital of Assyria is Nineveh. Has anybody got a book in their head that they should be thinking of from the Bible that has to do with Nineveh? How about my VeggieTale friends, right? What book? If you said Jonah, you're wrong. It should be Nahum. Nahum's about Nineveh as well, but also Jonah. Right, so, right? So Assyria, their capital is in Nineveh. He comes down, he destroys Damascus, he wipes out the Syrians. And so what ends up happening is that uh, after the battle is over, Ahaz goes to pay tribute to his new king, essentially. And where is he going to go? He's going to go to this old Syrian capital in Damascus and he starts touring all these temples and he falls in love with this stuff. In fact, what he does is he gets drawings and schematics of their altars and their temples and he says, hey, by the time I get back home in Jerusalem, I want this already built. It's essentially what happens. And he installs not just like Canaanite worship, but like completely foreign worship in the temple. Are you seeing this? He's a great dude though, right? Great guy. Never met him. So he copies their altars. He installs them in, Jer in Jerusalem. And then you start doing the math in your head. And you're like, yeah, no, no wonder Judah gets destroyed as well. It's the same thing. Same song, different tune. But here's the good news. Whereas Israel has like nothing but dirtbag kings, about 20 of them. They're all bad. In Judah, there's at least a couple of good ones. And thank God that Ahaz has a son named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is going to come to the throne immediately after Ahaz, and he basically is going to undo all the things that Ahaz did. 
Praise God. Stems the tide of judgment. You want to hear the bad news? He has a son and a grandson who are absolute dirt holes, and they undo what Hezekiah did. And they go right back to what Ahaz did. Praise God, there's this cat named Josiah. And Josiah shows up, and he's the last good king. The last good king of Judah, and he's the one who actually, in his first year, starts instituting this religious reform. And that's the only reason why Judah lasts as long as they do, is they're punctuated by these good kings occasionally who return to faithfulness. But it's eventually it just gets to a point where it's just too little too late. Yeah? In fact, Josiah, he was told about in 1 Kings chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, uh, Ahijah is talking to Jeroboam. He's like, hey, by the way, these altars, these golden calves that you're talking about, um, there's going to come a guy. His name is going to be Josiah, and he's absolutely going to destroy this joint. And sure enough, Josiah does exactly that whenever he comes to the throne 100, 130 years later, whenever it is. Yeah. So that's essentially where we're going to end for tonight. But here's the thing I want us to see. And if you haven't picked up on this from like literally the entire series, know this. God orchestrates history to bring about His just ends. Even with the Assyrians, even with the Babylonians eventually, He is orchestrating history to bring about what He sees as real justice. And let me illustrate this for you. In Isaiah chapter 46, incidentally, Isaiah is kicking around about the time of King Ahaz. This is what Isaiah 46, 8 through 10 says. God speaking says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you sinners, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there's no one like me. I am God and I, there is no other. Remember this, fellas. There ain't nobody like me. How is there no one like me? Verse 10, He is the one who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. Here's what we've got to hear. We can, in fact, trust that God is going to work everything out in His timing and that how He works it out does not impinge on His character. Are you tracking with me? Let me illustrate this even further. How many of y'all's favorite minor prophet is Habakkuk? That was Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 10. In Habakkuk, starts off with, I actually referenced him um, last week whenever we were talking about Hamas, right? Um, Habakkuk says in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he basically is stepping out and he's talking to God and he says, I look around and all I see is, in Hebrew, Hamas, violence. All I see is violence and injustice. And what he sees from there is he's like, God, I'm looking around and the wall's going perverted. Your people don't follow the covenant. Where are you? And then you get that great coffee mug verse in Habakkuk 1.5 of you wouldn't believe the plans I have for you even if I told them to you, right? And we plaster that on silly little pillows and stuff and we're like, yeah, that's great plans. Do you know what God immediately tells him? One, he tells him his plan and Habakkuk goes, yeah, I don't get it. Well, yeah, that's exactly what God told you was going to happen. He tells Habakkuk, no, 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 I'm at work. In fact, I'm going to use these Babylonians and they're going to overthrow not only the Assyrians, but also y'all. What? 
And then in chapter, the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2, Habakkuk basically says, how is it that you, a just God, are going to use someone who's more wicked than us to judge us? How, how does this work? And then Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk is standing on the watchtower and he says, I am awaiting, chapter 2, verse 1, I will take my stand on my watch post, station myself on the tower, and look out to see what he, speaking of God, will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk says this, Hey God, you're going to have to explain this to me because i got to be missing something. There's no way you're going to send someone who's worse than us to bring about justice? Like, how does that work? And God, in chapter 2, doesn't actually tell him exactly how it's going to work, but he tells him, this is who I am. This is what is going to happen. And you know how Habakkuk chapter 3 ends? Habakkuk ends in chapter 3 by saying, Though the fig tree shouldn't blossom and there's no fruit on the vines, there's no food there today and there's not going to be any food there next week, the produce of the olive will fail and the fields yield no food, and there's no food available now, and there's no food later. The flock be cut off from the fold and there's no herd in the stalls, there's no food out there and there's no food here. He's basically saying it's bad and it's going to get worse. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You're right, God, I don't understand how you're using the Babylonians. I don't understand how you're using someone more wicked than us to judge us and to bring about justice. But I know that's who you are. I, I've given you my answer. I think this is weird and I don't understand it, but I trust you. That is how Habakkuk ends. And for us, we have got to see that God orchestrates history to bring about his just ends and it does not impinge his character along the way. Word? So if you've ever had that really like weird feeling when you're reading Judges and you're hearing about these cities being devoted to destruction and there's just utter death and you're like, man, how does this work? God's orchestrating history. He has just means and a just ends. And it doesn't impinge His character. When things seem like they're falling apart all around us, we've got to see that God is still working on behalf of His creation and His people. He is. Go ask the disciples a couple days after they walk into Jerusalem with Jesus. And he's getting strung up. And things look like they are falling apart around him. And then a couple days later, he's walking into a locked, locked room, showing them holes in his hands. God orchestrates history and he brings about just ends. Yeah? I cannot explain to you in a philosophical or even like a really satisfactory um, ethical conversation of like, all this is just good and just believe it. Like there's much more nuance to it than that. But at the end of the day, that is the biblical storyline is that the authors of scripture are saying, yeah, I don't understand all of it, but I trust your character. And if that's true for them, it should be true for us. Yeah. All right. So here's some final thoughts. These are gonna be real simple. Number one, guys, history matters. Like it does, right? I'm not asking you to go get a degree in history. I'm not asking you to go get some PhD and be Joe Garner for us. But we got to know our history. You realize that this is our history as those who are the people of faith, those who are called by God's name. This is what we have inherited. This story is what we have inherited. It is for our benefit and for our instruction. We need to know it. Do you need to know exactly what Tiglath-Pileser translates into? No. 
That ain't what I'm talking about. But you've got to see how God moves through history. You have to. That's why we're doing this whole thing this semester. All right? History matters. Second thing is theology matters. If these prophets keep showing up as covenantal enforcers and they're saying, hey, y'all got to be doing these things and we're not doing those things, we're not doing what God told us to do, our theology is off. What happened to the northern kingdom when their theology got sideways? What happened to the southern kingdom when their theology got sideways? Theology matters. Again, I'm not asking you to be a systematic theologian. I'm not asking you to go get a degree, but I am asking you to like think intentionally about the Word given to us for our benefit because this is where life is to be found. And what we think about that matters. And here's the last thing. More importantly, faithfulness to what the Bible teaches matters more than even just that history and the theology. If you can regurgitate for me all sorts of theology and you can quote chapter and verse, excellent. And my next question is going to be, okay, but do you do those things? I think there's plenty of people who are very well versed in Scripture and do not live by it. They have correct theology. In James, James is writing, hey, you do realize like your big proclamation of the of the Shema that the Lord your God is one. It's like you do realize that even demons recognize that. But they have enough sense to actually fear what that means. And here you are just spouting it out, doing nothing. You're like some fool who's got dirt on their face, go looks in the mirror and like, good. And then you walk away without dealing with what you just saw. You can have correct theology, but if you're not living faithfully according to what it demands, what good is it? For those of us who know what the right thing is and we don't do it, that is sin. That ain't me. That's Bible. Take it up with Jesus. Okay? So whenever we think about history, when we think about theology, when we think about faithfulness, when we see the example of Jeroboam up in the north and Rehoboam down in the south, like we have got to see that that story is actually our story too. Right? You see that failure that they have of trying to generate God's blessing by our just white-knuckling effort, and it's never going to get there. Because what God asked us to do was be faithful and to be obedient and submissive. Yeah? All right, we got time. What questions do you have about this de-evolution of Israel and Judah? I think y'all should go back and read First and Second Kings. You should get some information there and be able to hold on to that. I just don't have the time to teach every little bit of it. And what I will argue is that if I were to go through every little bit of it, it would turn into, well, just like this other guy, this is his failure and it gets worse. And then a little bit later, like, well, if you remember that other dude, it's basically the same thing. It just gets worse, right? So that's what we're, that's what we're dealing with here. Yeah? Questions? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, so just started off, the Akkadian Empire is the, the, uh, the big baddie that's 2000 BC. And then about the year 1200 BC is when the Akkadian Empire becomes the Assyrians, who are basically in Turkey, and the Syrians, which are the Hittites and the Arameans. Those cats are down south. 
eventually the Syrians and Egypt are going to have military and economic alliances. They have a big falling out. And when that happens, Syria is vulnerable. And Assyria starts moving down south and they just gradually start taking over more land. In the middle of that process is when Israel has an alliance with Syria to attack Judah. And so the enemy of my enemy is my friend type situation. Judah asks Assyria for help. And then Assyria comes and just starts moving south and wiping everything out. That's essentially the story there. Does that help clarify some of it? Akkadian Empire, it's called that because there's a city named Akkad. It's kind of northern Iraq. It's north of what Babylon um, would be, what Baghdad is. Um, and so that was one city that was right there on the Euphrates. And so it was wealthy. And that's where it starts growing from there. Essentially, yes. And Babylon is Babel. That's where the name comes from. should make that connection. Either at a minimum in typology that they are exactly the same as far as like what they did is what happened in Babel, or there's actually decent evidence that it's physically it's the same place. Babel and Babylon is like in the same area. Just like Jerusalem is the king of Salem, there's this cat named Melchizedek. He's the king of Salem that Abram has a conversation with. That's Jerusalem. Salem, Jerusalem, same place. Names are weird in Hebrew. Other questions? Uh, the Hittites, yeah, because, I mean, they're basically the Syrians. Yeah, so they're the ones that run Damascus. And so the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, Jebusites are there in Jerusalem. Um, the Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, those are the ones that Joshua is fighting over and over again. They eventually subdue them for a time, but they really just push them north is what ends up happening. So that's, that is Syria. Just think of that. King Pekka, I think, is related to that with the northern uh, kingdom. Has an ongoing feud in that way. So, Other questions? And there's a whole bunch of this stuff that's probably brand new information to you, and it came really quickly. Chad. So the question was, did Shishak take the, the Ark of the Covenant? I don't actually know. I'm on the wrong slide anyway. I don't actually know. Because I don't think it's actually laid out that that's what happens. I mean, it stands to reason that it may have, but like, I don't, I don't actually know. We do know the Ark of the Covenant is lost at some point. Where? Uh, I don't know. Go ask Indiana Jones. He'll tell you, right? Some Nazis have it, apparently. Yeah, I don't know. I don't actually have a good answer for that. All right, other questions about all this history that I just barfed on you? All right, let me just point us to where we are heading. So, boom. We are basically a week behind. Um, we should be talking about Israel's destruction and then the Babylonian uh, ascent. That's going to be a video that's going to come out between now and Thanksgiving. And then when we come back together on the 29th, we're going to pick right up with Judah being destroyed. And then 
all of the Babylonian captivity and their return from captivity. So that's basically what we're going to cover from there. That's about a hundred year swath that we're going to cover in one night. The great news is we're going to take two full weeks to talk about Alexander the Great, the Diadochoi states. We're going to talk about Hellenization and all that good jazz. We're going to talk about the Maccabean revolt. We're going to get to the Romans. This is the stuff that is between Malachi and Matthew that like, it's not in our Bible, but history tells us a whole bunch of stuff. We're going to take two weeks to talk about that stuff. And honestly, that's where I think we're going to make a lot of money um, in this study. Yeah? Cool? All right. Let me pray for us. I'll be up here for further questions. We'll go from there. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we have preserved in Scripture this example of what failure to be covenantally faithful to you and what it is that you have demanded of us rightly, what that incurs. God, I thank you that we have that lesson that we can learn from Jeroboam, Rehoboam, Israel, Judah. But God, we also can just see that in our own lives. God, I thank you for your justice and I thank you for your mercy. God, that we see the justice of God and then we recognize, as Paul says, that you are the one who is just and the justifier. You are the one that makes us righteous because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And there's nothing that we can do to earn that. And so, Father, I am incredibly thankful. And I pray that we would recognize that however tenuous that connection is in our mind of these things that are happening literally 3,000 years ago to today, However difficult it is for us to see those connections, God, I pray that you would send your spirit to help us see that those connections are real and that we actually stand in the lineage of the people who live this. And so, Father, I pray that you would send your spirit to help us understand that and to live by it in a God-honoring way that is showing covenantal faithfulness and recognizing that theology does, in fact, matter. And so, Father, we thank you for what it is that you have done and your foreknowledge. Holy Spirit, we thank you for summoning us to sanctification and doing the work that we can't in that process. And Jesus, we thank you for sprinkling us clean with your blood and calling us to obedience. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. All right, if you got questions, I'm up here.